Welcome to the Question Community Broadcast. The Question is a new disruptive community that provides a gathering place for those who wonder about our complex selves, our complex world, our complex universe. We are a non-religious and inclusive community that explores the many questions surrounding truth in order to encourage you on the important journey to find your own answers. The Question Community gathers every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary, starting at 7. Information on the community is available at our website, www.thequestion.ca. You can also join the community online at our Facebook page, which is The Question, and on Twitter, at TQCom, with two M's. You're now going to hear some highlights from our community gathering, where the question is asked through original arts and music, as well as thought-provoking presentations. And as I said, we plan to disrupt by encouraging a culture of questions rather than conclusions, and by honoring the questioners among us. Now, because we're a community with no programmed answers or conclusions, but with a belief that a path marked by questions is the most important prerequisite for knowledge. I want to quickly share a, a quote with you that expresses this belief far better than I can. Recently, I was listening to a radio interview with a renowned medical researcher who had devoted his entire career to finding a cure for a very serious and complex disease. Whenever he got discouraged by the slow progress towards solving this gigantic scientific puzzle, he recalled a quote that his wise mentor, another famous researcher, had borrowed from the American author E.L. Doctorow, who originally said it about the challenge of writing. His mentor personalized the quote to describe the researcher's journey, and I'll show it as the researcher first heard it. Medical research is like driving at night. You never see further down the road than your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. Now, I've taken the liberty of personalizing this quote as well to help you understand what we're attempting to do tonight. And here's how it could read for this gathering. The question is like driving at night. You can never see further down the road than your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. So essentially, the question community is hoping to encourage a decision to jump in the vehicle turn the headlights on, and begin a long, interesting drive to an as-yet-unknown personal destination. And yes, we think you can do the whole trip that way. This is Carla Olive. I've been kind of obsessed with war lately. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, just kind of reflecting. And um, There's obviously history, and that's, that's why we have this perpetual uh, just this fighting and, and we're at war with each other and um, and just just a huge question of when is it going to end and will it ever end? Uh, so this is a reflection on that. Bye. 
This is Frederick Tamagi. The question is our own expression of a classic tradition that flourished in ancient Greece, in the city of Athens, on top of Mars Hill, at a gathering that was called the Areopagus. Now, for over 500 years, the Areopagus flourished, first as a high-level political council, then as a kind of judicial supreme court, and finally, as a unique intellectual and spiritual forum where an ongoing dialogue took place amongst philosophers, scientists, politicians, theologians, soldiers, citizens, and activists, all converging from everywhere in the known world. Now, even though the Athenians possessed a very established set of principles and laws, including their very own pantheon of gods, the Areopagus was by design a completely neutral institution. It was an agenda-free zone dedicated to investigating and understanding the multifaceted nature of truth in all its forms. The Areopagus community was so committed, in fact, to the free expression of ideas that they actually constructed a monument to remind them of this important principle. In the very center of the public square, where all people were welcome to present their ideas and theories, there stood a large statue with the inscription, to an unknown god. Now, in this painting, you can kind of see that statue kind of on the right side of the painting in the background. 
And this statue had this, this inscription, to an unknown God. This statue was actually an enduring symbol of humility for even such a proud and enlightened people as the ancient Greeks. The presence of the statue declared that even they did not, or perhaps would never know, everything. The statue was also a symbol of exploration and discovery, even destiny. Perhaps most importantly, the statue of the unknown god was a decidedly non-cynical declaration of belief that the truth of things was indeed out there somewhere. The very fact that this community existed acknowledged that any important truth was far from being easily discovered or understood, but nevertheless was theoretically attainable and worthy of reverence. So, the ancient Areopagus community of Athens has inspired the question community of Kensington. Uh, I present this ancient connection to you uh, with the hope that we'll have the same humility about what we think we know, as well as the same hunger to search for what we don't know. My chosen method to explain what this community is can be connected to a very important 20th century artistic movement known as Cubism. Now, the Cubist movement in art began in the early 1900s, was primarily led by the painters Georges Braque and Pablo Picasso. It's considered one of the seminal game-changing movements in the history of modern art, uh, and even in all the history of art itself. In Cubist artwork, subjects are deconstructed and reassembled in an abstracted form. Uh, but remember, not all abstract artists are Cubists. So instead of depicting subjects from a traditional single viewpoint, the Cubist creates the image from a multitude of simultaneous viewpoints to represent the subject in a kind of amplified subjectivity. It's a very personal context of expression. Now, not to diminish the important contribution of, of Monsieur Georges Braque to the Cubist movement, our main companion on the journey tonight will be Pablo Picasso, who everybody uh, knows. I'm going to briefly share with you now some comparative images to give you a sense of the alternative path that we're suggesting for the question. This first set of images are both titled Girl with a Mandolin. The painting on the left is by a 19th century Croatian artist named Vecislav Karas. Now, it's clearly a beautiful and elegant image of a woman playing the instrument. And we can just enjoy the colors and the serenity that Karas produced in this painting. Now, on the right is one of Picasso's earliest Cubist studies of another girl with a mandolin. You can see that he has, in fact, disassembled and reassembled his subject to reveal something else that only he sees. Now, now we see it too, but it's left up to our imagination to speculate on what it actually means. The second set of images illustrates more dramatically the contrast between conventional and Cubist perspectives. The painting on the left is called The Weeping Madonna by a 15th century Dutch painter named Derek Boots. Now, there's no doubt this is also a very beautiful and deeply emotional image of a woman in sadness. On the right is Picasso's later Cubist work called Crying Woman. What's remarkable about this painting is the dramatic unpeeling of the very emotional outer layers of sadness to expose an even more powerful, completely unique inner layer of sorrow. It's almost as if the Cubist perspective has attempted to turn the subject's experience 
literally inside out. Some of you may be familiar with a lady named Gertrude Stein. Does anyone know Gertrude Stein? Gertrude Stein was an influential feminist author and renowned art collector of the early 20th century. She lived in Paris for much of her life and was a close friend, actually, of both Georges Braque and Pablo Picasso. During her time in Paris, she wrote this important description of Cubism. The point of Cubism is that you paint what you know is there, not merely what you see, but it must be there because you have other evidences than reality. When I read this description of cubism, it struck me immediately that it was also a pretty accurate description of the question. It covers all those key components that I spoke of earlier uh, as reasons why we're here tonight. Remember, it's about our inherent curiosity about what is true. It's also about a reflexive caution and cynicism over being told what is true by someone else. And finally, it's about an unpressured motivation to consider, to search for, and perhaps discover what is true for ourselves, our very own form of amplified subjectivity. So the sum total of what I've shared with you is this. Pretty much the sole mission of the question community is to invite you, provoke you, even inspire you to consider a path. It's quite possible that this path will initially take you from being just a bystander to being an observer. If you can take that first step, it's wholly possible that you can be further transformed from being an observer to being a thinker. And if you get that far down the path, what's to stop a thinker from becoming an explorer or even a cubist? Only you know where you are right now on this path. And only you can ask yourself what you wish to become or where you wish to go. So, at this very first embryonic gathering of the question community, I'll leave you with these questions to ponder and hopefully dialogue about over the next few days or weeks. What do you think our world would be like if the explorers outnumbered the bystanders? Where are you on this path right now? And where would you like to go? And I think uh, reflections on war have uh, made me uh, realize the war inside myself. And uh, there's always just, um, always questions uh, of why we do the things we do. And what is the root? Uh, this next tune, um, it's called Stand Tall. And I, it was my response to, or my lack of response to how, it, how you uh, respond to war and what is your here in this in this country, and um, we're just not faced with it. We are on television, and, and we're bombarded with it in the radio and in the newspaper. But uh, uh, what can we really do? And I just felt totally helpless. But um, you know, maybe there is a day that perhaps we just need to surrender, um, and that's surrendering in my own life too, in my own uh, war within. <laughs>
<clears throat> was taken in 1949 for Life magazine. It shows Picasso using one of the very first electric light pens to draw this remarkable image of a centaur in the empty space right in front of him. The innovative but very simple technique that was used to capture this incredible photograph was a completely darkened room, two still cameras, one for a front view and one for a side view, both camera shutters left open, and a long exposure film. It's a remarkable photograph, isn't it? Now, you'll remember Gertrude Stein's description of, of the cubist perspective. The point of cubism is that you paint what you know is there, not merely what you see. But it must be there because you have other evidences than reality. This photograph captures Picasso actually living out the cubist identity in real time. We don't have to imagine the process. We can actually see him painting what he knows is there in the dark, seemingly empty space right in front of him. Every time I see this photograph, I'm just amazed. Now, the Picasso photograph is a great companion to this next image. Now, this is a simple artist's rendering of the rather large electromagnetic field emanating from the human heart. As you can see, it occupies a 360-degree, three-dimensional zone around the body. Now, it's long been known that the heart, like the brain, is both a generator and conductor of electromagnetic energy. Everyone's familiar with the widely used EEG and ECG diagnostic measurement model, right? We're all familiar with that, which utilizes electrical impulse data from our brain and heart to provide valuable information to doctors. However, in the last decade or so, the emerging science of neurocardiology say it again, neurocardiology, has opened up new insights and new technologies that have yielded evidence of this wildly interesting EM field. It's called a torus, by the way, if anybody's a geometry geek in the room, it's called a torus. Now, this torus, on average, extends to a five-foot radius around our bodies. And there are even some very high-tech EM studies that enable detection of this field as far away as 30 feet from the source. You can now imagine this room in a completely different way as we occupy space in each other's EM fields. Neurocardiology researchers have established some profound similarities between EM measurements from the brain and EM measurements from heart activity. Even more important, new discoveries about the similarities between brain and heart neural cells have prompted exciting new questions about the possible relationships between biology, consciousness, creativity, and even knowledge itself. So when this Life Magazine photograph was taken, Picasso probably didn't realize that he was drawing the centaur right in the middle of his very own EM field. But if we'd been there with him in 1949, do you think he would have told us anyway that he absolutely knew that the centaur was already there? Okay, that's your bonus question for the evening. And thank you very much for your patient listening tonight. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in joining the question community, we meet every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary starting at 7. 
You can participate in the online discussion on our Facebook page, which is The Question, or on Twitter at TQCOM. That's at T-Q-C-O-M-M. Our website is www.thequestion.ca. Thanks again for listening, and remember that our answers are only possible because of our questions.